Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be covering A Night in Malniant by Clark Ashton Smith. This story was originally published in 1929. I'm really excited to talk about this story, but before we get into it, we want to let listeners know about a uh, host, I guess, a host of bonus episodes that we just released on Patreon over the first few months of 2021. We did these, not for everyone on Patreon, we did these for people at the Archon level and higher, which is the the level at which you get to vote in the, the polls that decides what we cover on this show. And we actually took one of those votes away in January uh, for, for technical reasons that we don't really need to go into. But as a result of that, we wound up releasing a whole bunch of extra bonus episodes to make up for that, including the next story, the second story in the Sargasso Sea Cycle by William Hope Hodson. We did our first August Durleth story over there as well. That was the, the Fisherman of Falcon Point. Uh, perhaps most importantly, we did the next story in the King in Yellow Cycle by Robert W. Chambers. That one was the Yellow Sign. And we also did The Treasure of Abbott Thomas by M.R. James, which is uh, actually probably my favorite of the M.R. James stories that we've uh, we've covered so far. And all of those episodes are available now to people at the Archon level or, or higher on Patreon. And uh, if that is not you, we'd uh, we'd love for you to join us there. Yeah, please consider joining us on Patreon, not just to get access to these uh, stories that we covered, which you know was a real blast, but also to the host of other things that we've covered, the bonus episodes. There's uh, cool crossover host episodes between shows as well. Valerie and I uh, cover an episode of the X-Files. We also did a Gilmore Girls episode earlier. So (laughs) not only will you get access to this group of really great Elder Sign stories or things we'd normally cover on Elder Sign, you'll also get episodes of other really cool stuff that uh, we just don't have an opportunity to do otherwise. So we hope you'll join us on Patreon and we hope you enjoy what we put out just for the members of our Patreon community. But we do have to cover A Night in Malneon here. This story is pretty slight. I felt it was slight. I think we're going to be talking about just what makes this a story in our discussion, um, whether it might be said better suited for another style of writing. Uh, this story is all atmosphere. It is just every sentence is an atmospheric sentence here. Uh, <laughs> so it's really interesting on that level. It's certainly a setting. It's certainly a place. And uh, Clark Ashton Smith has invested a lot of energy into realizing this place or space that his narrator finds himself in. So Glenn, let's talk about the narrator and the night he spends in Malniant. My brief sojourn in the city of Malniant occurred during a period of my life that is dim and dubious even as that city itself in the misty regions lying thereabouts. I have no precise recollection of its locality, nor can I remember exactly when and how I came to visit it. Those are the the two opening lines of A Night in Malneant, and uh, I think they're pretty creepy. This is a type of story that is fairly common in weird fiction, but we've actually not done before. It's the the mysterious geographic location that I had never heard of, but came across randomly and now can never find again. This is a type of story that I really, really love. Uh, The music of Eric Zahn is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. That's just one example of these. I'm glad to be finally getting to that genre of story here in weird fiction, but of course, we should talk about what's going on here as well, right? Which is that obviously the story, this is in the first person, it's going to be about this dude's one night in the strange city of Malniant. Uh, Malniant is, I mean, I said it was creepy, I guess, but really it's it's 
eerie, maybe, is the better word. I mean, here are some phrases that Smith uses to describe it in the opening of the, the story. He says, mortuary tolling of many bells. Uh, he also says, the gray colossal bridge that crosses the river. And then we get the, the bridge of shadowy arches under which the black waters flowed in stealthy division and were joined again in a silence as of sticks and Acheron. And, and I promise I'm not going to just read the whole, the whole story, though I was tempted to do it because I think the prose here is just... Uh, you know, the descriptive prose especially is just beautiful. But what I want to call attention to here, right, is that Smith is using a lot of death imagery here in this first paragraph. We're gonna we're gonna find out how that is thematically appropriate in in a moment. But really what I want to know up front, Brandon, is just how this first paragraph works for you to establish the mood and the setting or or atmosphere, I guess is the word that you've been using. Yeah, the first paragraph of this story or the opening of this story works extremely well for me in terms of setting the mood and atmosphere. You're, you're, you, you talked about how these sort of cityscapes, uh, these eerie places that the narrators find themselves upon as a, a sort of subgenre of the weird tale. It's not quite to my taste in terms of a mode of storytelling, because I, I want more to be going on in terms of, uh, maybe plot or action of the, the movement of the story. Uh, but at this point, when I was reading the story, uh, I loved it. I mean, I love this opening. I, I want to point out a few things here. Styx is, of course, the the river that borders the underworld in Greek mythology. It's the place, the liminal space between our corporeal world and, and the Greek underworld. And Acheron is the river of woe, so-called. And there are five rivers that feed into the river Styx. Uh, Acheron is one of them. And this one is of woe. So we're getting this sense of sorrow on top of this sort of cemetery mood and imagery. Uh, so, I mean, I'm already thinking that Malniant is a kind of underworld, I guess. And what also jumped out to me about this opening is that this narrator knows what Malniant is, even though we don't, and he kind of expects to find it or is looking for it on some level. Maybe he's not looking for it. Maybe he just expects to come across it. Um, I'm not quite sure, but the it's fascinating to me that what brings us into the story is the expectation of the narrator that he's going to end up in this town one way or another. Uh, we should also say that Malniant is a French compound word, or maybe it's a portmanteau. It combines the words that for in French that mean bad or wrong or evil and uh, the word for nothingness. So, I mean... If you're just looking at the story from the language level here, <laughs> what's present, this guy's in a real tight corner. Uh, the name of the town he's heading to is enough to make me want to stay away from it. Uh, and not, <laughs> not, not to mention that when he does arrive there, you know, as you pointed out, Glenn, mortuary bells are ringing. So this is not a great uh, place. And I think Clark Ashton Smith has done an incredible job of making us sense that even if we're not doing the, the research to uncover this French portmanteau. Right. Uh, something we should say about this story before we go any further, because we're not really going to talk about this uh, in this episode, but this story does take place in Clark Ashton Smith's uh, fictional setting of Averonia, which is a, a type of like, you know, it's a pseudo France, basically. And so, you know, here we go. We get a, a French name here. Averonia is obviously also a French, uh, a French name. There's nothing in this story that indicates that unless you already know about Averonia. And we have not covered any other Averonia. 
Navarone stories. So I don't know that we'll really talk about it in that context. Though when we get our first story that really is explicitly about Averonia, which we will eventually, we might revisit this one a little bit in, in the discussion of whatever story that will end up being. And, you know, listeners, if you've got ideas for that, we'd love to love to have them. But you're right, he does know about this city. I mean, my sense of of what's happening here, we'll actually get into who the narrator is in just a minute, I promise. But but my sense was that he had just heard about the the city of Malneant while he's on this journey and you know, was going from A to B and someone at an inn said something like, Oh, well, you'll you'll encounter Malneant on your way. But he had never heard of it before, but he was sort of expecting it, you know, in this sense. But the region he's traveling in, right, is totally covered in all this fog. And so yeah, it's just these more Sanctuary bells coming out of the fog. You know, the city means evil nothing. I mean, like, yeah, get out of there. Don't don't go in there. Don't go in that room. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this narrator. Uh, we're never going to learn his name, of course, but our narrator has some backstory, and he, he tells that to us uh, now that, uh, that that Smith has set the atmosphere for us. So he is spending some time just wandering around the world, and he's doing that because he's trying to forget a tragedy in his life. He's really just trying to stay in motion, uh, maybe trying to run away from himself. And the tragedy is that his lover, a woman named Marielle, she's always referred to as the Lady Marielle, uh, she she died. Uh, of course, it's not that simple. She committed suicide, and she did so because of the narrator's, and here I'm quoting, she did so because of the narrator's changeable temper and fits of cruel indifference and ferocious irritability. Uh, So what we've got here is a Byronic hero who is wandering around uh, what I would describe, I guess, as a Dunsanian dreamland setting. Uh, This... You know, this is basically the life I always envisioned for myself when I was 13, I, I, I guess, though, uh, perhaps without the, like, actually driving someone I loved to, to suicide business. But but yeah, Byronic Hero, Dunsanian Dreamland setting. I'm, I'm hooked. But but how are you feeling about it at this point, Brandon? I don't feel great about this narrator. I mean, he is at this point in the story, which is still very early on, though the rest of the story is essentially uh, the tour of the cityscape, the eerie cityscape. But at this point, the narrator is a self-acknowledged rotten person. He's entirely unsympathetic. And he's the type of person whose erratic moods have led his lady love to believe that poison was the only escape from him. And that that's rough. And so what this narrator is doing now is essentially wallowing in his own self-pity. He's almost used this tragedy as an excuse to maybe become what he's always wanted to become, what I wanted to become when I was 13 as well as you, Glenn, (laughs) uh, which is somebody with essentially no responsibilities in search of something, uh, some sort of place that will take them in. But the place or the mental space that this narrator is looking for is oblivion, as he calls it. And that word comes up a few times in the story. And oblivion is, of course, a kind of nothingness. And the narrator is using booze and drugs to aid him on this quest. But he's also sojourning, which is essentially he's stopping over in places. He's not forming any roots or connections with other human beings. He is soaking in his own love of alienation and isolation, as well as in his uh, addiction, perhaps to alcohol. So there's a lot that I <laughs> that I like about what this character's up to. I mean, there are times where I'm like, hey, what if I just got in a van and, and lived in the state parks and stuff uh, for a little while? But this searching of oblivion 
to me, you know, first of all, also underlines this Malniant, this word Malniant here that we get in the, in the name of the city. So he's, we're going to expect that he's going to find what he's looking for here on some level. And I, and I think he kind of does, and maybe it's restorative in some way. We can talk about that. Um, but he's also maybe enjoying his tragedy and self-pity a little too much for me to have, find any sympathy with his uh, past, with his person. Right. Even, even the way that he describes what it is about himself that led Marielle to, to kill herself is, you know, I'll just say the line again, it's changeable temper and fits of cruel indifference and ferocious irritability. He, he's talking about his character traits and not about anything that he actually did, right? He's, he's taking the action out of out of it, taking the agency out of it. He's not quite using the passive voice here. He's not quite saying mistakes were made, uh, <laughs> but but he basically is right. But what he's describing here is some combination of verbal and emotional abuse. That's that's what we would describe this, or that's how we would describe this today. That's what he's talking about. I don't know. There might even be some gaslighting uh, going on in there too, right? <laughs> and now he feels real bad about it, uh, but maybe not so bad. Although we'll see. We should we should get into the plot and we'll uh, uh, we'll find out, right? We've got our setting. We've got our characters so we can do the plot now and you know we, we have not maybe pointed out as much as we should that this is a very short story it's really i think what six pages in the collection that we uh read this out of so there are not a lot of plot beats here this isn't really a story about plot as you've mentioned already brandon so will not take us too long to get through what happened in malniant that this dude wants to tell us about I mean, it is a big deal, right? What he's going to tell us, but it is only these five pages. And it turns out that the the reason for the bell ringing in Malniant is that the entire city is preparing for a funeral. Uh, and in fact, he can't even find a room or, or a bed to rent for the night because of the number of people who have come to the city for this funeral. And these include people who want to mourn the dead person, but it's also musicians who are going to perform at the service and, and other people who are like doing work at the, the service. And so our narrator is wandering around Malniant while we, the reader, are getting descriptions of the eerie and brooding architecture, all of which is shrouded in fog. I mean, the narrator can barely see anything at all beyond the first level of these buildings. But he learns that the funeral is for someone named Mariel. In fact, someone named the Lady Mariel. But surely, I mean, obviously, right? right this can't be his Mariel that he drove to suicide. And as he wanders around Malnayon, that's what he keeps telling himself, right? Surely it cannot be the same person. But of course, as you know, we will all have guessed already at this point, it is actually his Mariel. And he does eventually make his way to the cathedral where the body is, is lying there. Uh, and it is her. He sees her face. He knows it's her. And so now he is having to face her death again, right? A death that he caused. And, and here's what he says about this. Now I knew with a terrible certitude that this one event, the death of the Lady Marielle, had drawn apart from all other happenings, had broken away from the sequence of time, and had found for itself a setting of appropriate gloom and solemnity, or perhaps had even built around itself the whole enormous maze of that spectral city in which to abide my destined return among the mists of a deceptive oblivion." Uh, you know, I think we'll be taking up this very question in the discussion, like, is this real? What's happening here? But that's that's really it. That's the story, right? At this point, the narrator finds his way out of Malniant, continues his wandering, uh, though he's afraid of finding Malniant again and discovering that they are eternally preparing for Lady Mariel's funeral. But that's that's the story. That's That's the end of it.
Yeah, it's not a place I think he wants to revisit. And you have sort of predicted my first question, which I'll get to in a moment. There's just, you know, a few more notes I want to make on this story, which is, you know, the first one is I I, honestly, I'm not exactly sure what to make of the fact that no one has the space or the place in uh, no one has any space to let the narrator rest while he's in Malniant, which to me, if we're looking at this as a story as a sort of self-inflicted punishment or a wandering through one's own internal landscape of, of grief and guilt, um, the cruelest thing I think would be to let the person rest there. So that's something to really maybe consider about what Clark Ashton Smith has in mind for this narrator. We could say, I suppose, that this whole story is poetic or symbolic to some degree and that maybe the narrator believes he doesn't deserve rest as he travels through his own self-made underworld, as he's condemned by his own conscience. But he leaves the town at the end of the story. So I'm not not quite sure about that. And I just also want to reemphasize here before I ask a question here that this story is 100% atmosphere and booze soaked guilt. I mean, that is the level <laughs> that is the degree to which I am reading this story. So yeah, I'm going to ask the obvious question first here, Glenn, for the discussion. Is Malniant a real place? Or do you think it's a kind of unconscious reckoning that the narrator is experiencing of, of having that this uh, oblivion that he seeks is bad or wrong, that Malniant and oblivion are somehow related, that his searching for oblivion is maybe self-serving and it's wrong to some degree? Yeah. And I love this question. This is one of the things that I always love about this type of story. You know, when you get this sort of thing in, you know, I mentioned the, the music of Eric Zahn by, by Lovecraft at the, the top of the show, which is is really is one of my favorite stories. We leave that story thinking that the story is is real. The place in Paris where that story takes place is real, though someday we'll cover that story. And maybe maybe I'll find I disagree with myself when we actually get to it. But I don't think that's a story where we're meant to be thinking that what we've just read didn't really happen, that it was only something internal to the narrator. But here, I think that is the case. I think that this is, the, I think that Malniant, uh, even though we are already in a sort of fantasy land of, of Averonia, I don't think that Malniant is a real place that exists in Averonia. I think this is all in his in his mind. What that actually would look like externally, right? Because I do think that we can take the premise of of the whole story as being true, that there was this woman named Mariel who was, you know, his love, his fiance. She killed herself because he was emotionally and verbally abusing her. And now he feels sort of bad about it anyway. And so he's uh, uh, going on an, uh, an upper class, you know, walkabout to not deal with that at all, I guess. Uh, and that I think is literally happening. But then I think this bit with Malniant probably is not. So what actually is literally happening, I'm not sure, right? Did he, is this a dream that he's having? Is this a hallucination that he's had while he actually was wandering around? I mean, we might actually think that he's wandering around Averonia. There is some place where he's in some kind of mist that, I don't know, some kind of like hot spring thing where he's getting a lot of, <laughs> breathing in a lot of sulfur and having a hallucination or something like that. You mentioned that we know he's doing a lot of substance abuse while he's on this walkabout. So is this an opium dream or something like that? I, I'm not sure what the answer is in terms of what actually is happening, but I don't think that this is what is actually happening. I think this is in his mind. But what's your sense of it? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think the whole thing is is sort of in his head. I think it's, I think it is, as I kind of suggested in, in the, the question I asked, uh, an unconscious reckoning. I think 
Clark Ashton Smith didn't make the connections explicit enough or didn't give the narrator uh, the sense that he his seeking oblivion is wrong because what he really needs to do is change who he is uh, as a person. So like that character growth moment isn't really a part of this story. And in fact, there's not much that makes this a real story in the way we often think of stories. It's certainly in uh, maybe we could call it a, a kind of travelogue or maybe a chapter out of a, a picaresque, strange atmospheric chapter out of somebody's story of going from place to place, which is which is a picaresque and what they see and learn there. And often it's something they learn about themselves or some skill they need to pick up to bring the resolution of the story together. But I wonder then, you know, what you think the occasion for writing a story such as this is. I mean, why do we have this completely unsympathetic narrator that's not really interested in his own growth that kind of wants to return perhaps to his own sense of, of oblivion? Do you have a sense that he has changed by the end of this story, that he's recognized what he's done or that he's compartmentalized this whole experience as the night in Malniot and he never needs to return to it. And I wonder then if we if we can even rightly call this a story. Do you think that the writing of this narrative might work better in some other medium of writing? Um uh, maybe it's a kind of musing or it's kind of, it's maybe it's its own thing. To me, it feels almost like a poem, which uh, we know Clark Ashton Smith wrote a lot of poetry. So I threw a lot at you there. But the real question is, you know, what's what's going on as the person who's writing this story? What are they doing? What are they doing uh, technically uh, in the creation in the creation of this narrative? Well, I don't think that the the narrator has grown any in this. You, you used the word compartmentalizing or compartmentalization. And I think that's very clearly already what was going on here. And I think this actually is him cementing that where, especially if we're operating on the assumption that this is all happening in his mind in some way, that he's created now this actual f- fantasy land where this thing that he did which was abuse someone until she killed herself. Uh, He's made a place where that can live and he doesn't have to take it with him anymore. And I think he's just cording that off and I guess has made his peace with what he's done. He's going to probably walk around and drink and do drugs, I guess, for a little while longer before going home. But yeah, I don't think there's any kind of growth here. I don't think there's any kind of uh, reckoning with himself. There's no uh, vow to return to the world and be better to, and, and, and maybe even be good to do something to, to try to uh, certainly not you know fix what has happened. He can't do that. But but to turn his mistake into a change, right? That in which he will now dedicate his life to doing something positive in the world. There's no sense of that happening here at all, Not nothing. So I think that this is actually perhaps the narratization of the act of compartmentalizing these emotions in his in his own mind and not having to deal with them anymore or choosing not to deal with them anymore. I mean, let's revisit this in 30 years. To me, this story feels like it would work so much better as a poem if it had a stricter form that 
was more explicit about like what's going on here. Uh, and I also think it would make the cityscape and the eeriness just a lot more vivid. And, uh, you know, I'd hesitate to call this story fully a narrative. I think it works on other levels. I mean, one level I think it would really work on is as a poem that is about this wandering and it can be more internal, maybe a little more brooding and about putting away this episode in your life and continuing on in search of oblivion. Uh, I think that would work really well as a poem. And I was really thinking about how to take some of these sentences and turn them into iambic pentameter or free verse or something <laughs> like that uh, to really, to really make it just this gorgeous, eerie, weird tale in the form of a, uh, of a poem. Uh, but I was also thinking a lot about there's, there's a huge sort of slurry of short atmospheric sort of point and click adventure indie games that are out right now that seem to capture this type of tragic experience really well. And I was thinking also that this type of weird narrative has has come into its own in a totally new medium where these people who have forgotten a tragedy that they're responsible for go on this sort of journey of a reckoning. Maybe it takes place inside of a small house. Maybe it takes place inside of a, like a closed off town with real boundaries, but it has the same atmospheric feel to it that you're kind of trapped in the emotions and the symbols of those emotions are made real in the kind of the structure of the game. And I, I thought this would work very well as maybe a, you know, a two hour type of point and click adventure where, the character comes across the town and he's, you know, you click on notes or search in people's mailboxes and gather clues about what's going on and where you are. And then the end of it, you'd get this realization that you're at the funeral of the person you killed or something like that. And reality crumbles. I think that would have worked well. But I guess the, the question I want to ask you in light of all of that rambling commentary is let's not take maybe the story as the as a narrative or try to force it to be a narrative or a plot driven or character driven story and take it on the term that it's presented at presented as uh, to us, which is this kind of atmospheric cityscape, maybe this act of compartmentalization. And I wonder, Glenn, then what your thoughts are on how you might tweak this text to maximize really what it's trying to be. Right. Let me address a number of things going on there. So I definitely appreciate your suggestion that there, there's something poetical about this and that maybe he should have just put this in verse. Uh, I, I really felt like, especially at the beginning, that this was uh, fan fiction of Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Bells, which is one of my favorite poems. It's something that has, has haunted me for, for literally decades. And this feels very much like that. But I, I don't actually need this to be versified. I love the language of this of this piece, just the beautiful descriptions. And beautiful descriptions is what I'm going to literature for. I, I don't care about plot at all. In fact, I generally get annoyed when plots show up in my stories <laughs> and like couldn't really tell you the plots of most books that I've read, you know, after I put them down. But I could tell you descriptions that I really love. I mean, this is true of like the Book of the New Sun, for example, which we haven't gotten to yet on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, which I've read twice, but couldn't really tell you very much about the plot of it, but could probably come close to actually quoting verbatim <laughs> descriptive passages uh, from it, for right, example. Right. And that's that's really what I'm what I'm going to literature for. So for me, I don't need this to be in any form that it's not. But your critique here of hey, 
is this really much of an actual story in the sense that it is, you know, telling us something about uh, something that actually happened and something that changed as a result of it? I, mean, I think that's a fair criticism, right? That if if Clark Ashton Smith, you know, who did get this published and got paid for it, so that's awesome. That's, you know, that, that's success. You, you won with this story. But if I think if he took this story today, right, it would not be published today in a magazine. If you took this to, you know, a workshop, I don't know, let's just say Clarion, because I think, you know, I think Clark Ashton Smith would get into Clarion. So uh, let's just say he's at Clarion. And he's workshopping this with with you know successful SF writer of the day um, is going to get told that something has to actually happen in the story, right? And I, I think that that's a fair criticism. And I think that probably the the tweak that I would do would actually just to be more explicit about the mental state of the the narrator, and either give us that something does happen and that he is actually going to go back to the world and try to be better. Though I don't think that's actually what Smith wants, or give us his something more explicit about either his reckoning with he's comfortable with himself, or I think what Smith would rather do would be something like uh, give us the narrator realizing at this point that he has compartmentalized this and that he's going to go back to his life and keep being the same person and that he's okay with that. Or show us that he's not aware uh, that this is, you know, compartmentalizing. Give us a couple more paragraphs at the end about sort of what happens next. A little more musing about the uh, the, the night in Malniant as opposed to what we do get here, which is really just, and I left the city and I never found it again. And maybe I'm kind of glad I didn't because that would be scary. Give us a few more paragraphs tying all of that back into, explicitly tying that back into his emotional state. I think that's the tweak that I would make. Right, because we are given his explicit desire in this story. His want, what is motivating this character, is the search for oblivion. So I, I think that what you're suggesting here is to have him get what he wants on some level. Uh, and one way maybe to do that is also to have him say, you know, at these people's houses or at the inn, well, if I can't stay here, can I at least have a drink for the road and just get totally boozed up and then f wander out of the town, this labyrinthine excursion and maybe wake up in a, in a gutter or something like that and decide he's going to stay there and he's found oblivion. Just something that demonstrates, okay, You've given us what the character wants as a motivation. Don't maybe don't withhold that from the reader as well on top of everything else. That would be another thing to think about doing that wouldn't really you wouldn't have to do much to the story to include those elements. Yeah, I like this uh, this wake up in the gutter bit. And then you could actually just say that it's Baltimore and it's Edgar Allan Poe. And this was a Poe dream the whole time, <laughs> right. which actually I would slow clap at that ending. <laughs> Well, I only have one more question here for this story, and, and that's to give it a little bit of contemporary contextualization. Uh, Gene Wolfe selected this story to include in a volume of, of Clark Ashton Smith stories that he edited. And I just want to ask you what you think drew Gene Wolfe to this story in particular. Why include this of all the Clark Ashton Smith stories and poems and, and, and such that he's written? Why this one? Well, I don't think there's any accident that I just started ramblingly thinking about scenes, descriptive scenes from the Book of the New Sun, right? Uh, that there's a lot going on here in the descriptive powers of Clark Ashton Smith that Gene Wolfe uses in the Book of the New Sun and, and other works, but I think most principally in the Book of the New Sun, which also frequently has this gothic feel to it, this eeriness, this mysteriousness, this 
wandering and, and wondering what is actually going on and also features a protagonist who is not a likable person uh, in addition to being a first person narrative as well. And so although Gene Wolfe does not include a particularly detailed introduction in that book, that book's called The Return of the Sorcerer, by the way, uh, there's no real detailed introduction there. There's a very brief one. Uh, so he doesn't actually explain why he selected you know this story and that story. My sense was that this is a story that he read when he was younger and the language of it, the imagery really spoke to him and stuck with him and that it, it has shown up in his own fiction and so that this was something that he didn't pick for maybe you know the mastery of narrative here or something like that but because of the mastery of imagery and descriptive powers here as being something that that really stuck with him personally that that would be my guess I don't know what did you think I think that's a fair guess. I don't I don't really have too much to add to that other than I think you're right to point out that this kind of Baroque style of uh, describing cities and atmospheres is something I think that deeply informed a period of works, a period of Wolf's writing. Uh, and it really shows up in Book of the New Sun. And I think that is evident in uh, Night in Malniot, particularly. You know, and something we've done over here on Elder Sign to prep for the Book of the New Sun is to start reading the Jack Vance Dying Earth stories. But I actually think that, you know, Clark Ashton's myth is someone we should be thinking about in in that light as well. I think that there, you know, there really is a reason that Gene Wolfe edited a collection of Clark Ashton Smith stories. And stories like this, stories like A Night in Malneant, I think, have a real direct line to the, the Book of the New Sun. So we might we might think about making a, a little more of a project out of that here using Elder Sign to, to get us ready to to cover that you know, magnum opus over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast uh, as well. So again, if listeners have suggestions, we'd love to have them. But I think if we are looking ahead to other stories that we ought to be reading so that we can talk about uh, a different book on another podcast, <laughs> that might be an indication <laughs> that we are done with this one. Uh, it's a very short five-page story. So I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We hope you'll join us there. And if you'd like to support the network and get access to all those extra bonus shows that we mentioned at the top of the show, including, you know, our continuing coverage of The King in Yellow, which has been a real pleasure, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And please do also come over to the Clay Temple forums or our, our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of this story. Let us know what you thought of A Night in Malneant. And maybe in particular, let us know if you think that Malneant is a real physical location in Averonia. Uh, and you know, maybe you have some really good evidence for why that's true. We would love to have that conversation with you. And so next time, we're going to be back with Metzengerstein by Edgar Allan Poe. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>